0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Soho Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Sensation Machines by Adam Wilson. An endlessly twisty novel of big ideas, Sensation Machines is a brilliantly observed drama that grapples with greed, automation, universal basic income, revolutionary desires, and a broken criminal legal system. Adam Wilson implicates not only the power brokers getting rich at the intersection of Wall Street, Madison Avenue, Silicon Valley, and Capitol Hill, but all of us. Each one of us deputized willingly or unwillingly by these networks of capital. Next Thursday, July 1st, 7 p.m. Eastern, Adam Wilson will discuss his novel on Zoom with Harper's editor Christopher Bea, To register, visit marktwainhouse.org. That's marktwainhouse.org. Sensation Machines, by Adam Wilson. Out now, and coming soon in paperback from Soho Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today, the transnational wars on crime and drug trafficking have displaced anti-communism to become the dominant frameworks for prosecuting and legitimating U.S. intervention in Latin America, particularly in Mexico and Central America. Perversely these violent interventions, along with hardening militarized border controls, not only at the U.S. southern border, but through southern Mexico and beyond. It's also all supposed to help stop people from migrating to the United States. The reality, of course, is that the U.S. is very unlikely to solve the Central American migration crisis because it has done so much to create the conditions that drive people from their homes. In which have now led to yet another manufactured crisis at our southern border that is relentlessly exploited by U.S. politicians in domestic contests for power, rendering a deep crisis in the regional system into another culture war spectacle. Today's episode is my interview with historian Greg Grandin on his 2006 book, Empire's Workshop, Latin America, the United States in the Making of an Imperial Republic, a new and updated edition of which was just published. This isn't so much an interview on the history of Latin America, but more on the history of how US imperialism in Latin America has since the beginning profoundly shaped US politics. As I discussed earlier this year with political theorist Jeannie Moorfield, one of the most central features of American empire is that its chief proponents consistently disavow its existence. And it's the very early U.S. relationship with Latin America, Grandin writes, that becomes a template for the U.S.'s disavowed global empire. The quote, denial is doctrinal. And the foundational doctrine in question is, of course, the Monroe Doctrine, justifying U.S. intervention, quote, in the name of anti-interventionism. For the U.S., Latin American intervention is just foundational. The Mexican-American War led to the U.S. conquest of what is today a significant chunk of the Western United States. And that, of course, followed shortly after the conquest of Texas. Many in the US at the time wanted to conquer the entirety of Mexico, and the main reason that didn't happen was because the bottom half of Mexico contained too many Mexicans. The same thing happened when an indigenous rebellion in the Yucatan at the time caused local planter elites to beg Washington to annex the region. From the North American Settler Empire that the U.S. built out to the Pacific, to the disavowed and informal global empire that the U.S. built after the frontier closed, Latin America has consistently been the place, according to Grandin, where the U.S. developed its ideological, strategic, and tactical methods for dominance. Not only U.S. dominance worldwide, but also specific power blocks dominance within the U.S. domestic political order. The political calculus, unsurprisingly, was often economic and the economic calculus political. Grandin writes, quote, many of America's largest international corporations got their start in Latin America as capitalists poured billions into the region, first in mining, railroads and sugar, then in electricity, oil and agriculture. And then, quote, gunboats followed investment such as when President Teddy Roosevelt in 1905 forced a U.S. takeover of the Dominican Republic's Customs House. The examples are countless as far as ordinary human memory is concerned. We don't get into many official crimes committed by the United States in the region. We don't discuss the U.S. in 1903 helping Panama secede from Colombia to build the canal, or 1989 when the U.S. invaded Panama and overthrew CIA asset and Panamanian dictator Manuel Noriega, or how Bill Clinton's plan Colombia helped create the next model for U.S. counterinsurgency and intervention, this time against so-called narco-terrorists. We didn't have time to discuss the way that a US-governed world system facilitated a debt crisis that was exploited to impose neoliberalism across the region, leading to an orgy of shamelessly corrupt privatization that Grandin calls the third conquest. There are simply too many interventions to discuss in detail. As Grandin writes, quote, between 1898 and 1989, the United States either orchestrated or provided key support to at least 40 successful regime changes in Latin America. The intervention has been so constant that it's become normalized and then, perversely, sort of invisible. I want to do a lot more on Latin American politics over the coming year. There's so much going on, including Lula's potential comeback in Brazil, Chile's constituent assembly, Peru's recent election, and Keiko Fujimori's attempt to discredit it. I also plan on doing an episode specifically on Central American migration and the US manufactured spectacle over that US-induced migration at the border. But there is no better place to start thinking about the history of Latin America and how US intervention in the region has made US history than this brilliant, brilliant book by Greg Grandin. Before we get started, this podcast is a mostly listener-supported operation supported by listeners just like you at patreon.com slash the dig. We do have left-wing books, dig tote bags, dig coffee mugs to send you in the mail if you contribute at least $10 a month as a thank you. But the reason I would really like you to support us is because your contributions are what make the dig's existence possible. We do not paywall premium episodes for those who contribute. We... Let everyone listen to every episode, regardless of your ability to pay. So we rely on you, who can afford to contribute, just deciding to chip in because you want to support a podcast that you depend on for left-wing, smart, and in-depth analysis of everything, everywhere. Okay, the point is, if you haven't contributed yet and you can afford to, please take a quick moment to do so now at patreon.com slash the dig. That's patreo dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Greg Grandin, a professor of history at Yale University and the author of many books, including The Last Colonial Massacre, Fordlandia, and Empire's Workshop. He was on the dig last to discuss his book, The End of the Myth, and you can find a link to that episode as well as our entire archive at TheDigRadio.com. Greg Grandin, welcome back to The Dig.
1: It's great to be on again today. In
0: 1969, Henry Kissinger told Chile's foreign minister, quote, "...nothing important can come from the South." History has never been produced in the South. The axis of history starts in Moscow, goes to Bonn, crosses over to Washington, and goes to Tokyo. What happens in the South is of no importance. That, of course, is not true at all. Latin America not only has its very own consequential history, but it's also, you argue, played a key role in US history as an empire's workshop. Let's start with your overall argument. How has an extremely long history of rampant U.S. intervention in Latin America and of Latin American resistance to that intervention, how have both of those things shaped the development of American empire?
1: Intimately and indispensably. I mean, can you think of another region that has had a relationship with a peripheral area? for such a long duration and with such intense intervention that the United States and Latin America in a way that is founded on the notion of, of not being an empire under the terms, under the rubrics of a formal democracy, of formal equality, of formal nation states, of formal sovereignty. There's nothing like it. And over the two centuries, more than two centuries, Latin America has been a workshop, I think, in a number of ways. One, just practically. The United States got to try out different things in Latin America, it got to rehearse new military tactics. It got to put into place legal precedents to justify those military interventions. It's the first place that, you know, the Guggenheims and the rest of the barons of the 19th century first had an experience in overseas investment before they moved on to Africa and other areas where they did resource extraction. So there was a sense of it just being the place in which the United States first projected its power. And, you know, we think about Latin America when we look at the map as starting under Mexico. But really, before that border was drawn in the 1840s, Latin America was most of the northern continent, at least everything standing between the Mississippi River and the Pacific. First it was the Spanish Empire and then it was Mexico. So the United States' engagement with Figuring out how to push back and push on and push through first Spain and then Mexico to get to the Pacific is all part of the story. But there's another way the region served as a workshop for the United States as a form of self-creation, aspiring coalitions during moments of political realignment, whether we're talking about the Founders Coalition or the Jacksonian Coalition or the progressives, or the New Deal, or the new right under Reaganism. Latin America is the unacknowledged linchpin to those coalitions. It's the place where different constituencies overcome contradictory ideas and reconcile themselves. It's the way that they get a sense of themselves as a class or as a coalition of classes. Foreign policy is the place where hegemony is worked out not hegemony over other countries, but hegemony within this country. It's where moral ideas for how to best administer society get worked out.
0: Yeah, we don't often think of those histories together, but intervention in Latin America was, of course, core to westward expansion. It's literally constitutive of the United States, including really big states like California and Texas. And in that way, it seems almost so fundamental to the United States the degree to which it's fundamental and constitutive, it seems like that almost allows its importance and centrality to be obscured, both to people like Kissinger and to anyone else in the country.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's obscured. It's because it's an informal empire, because it's taking place within the terms of republicanism, because Latin America comes into the world as a confederacy, a republic that insists on their own sovereignty. And the United States has to acknowledge that it can't establish itself as a direct, I mean, it does, and I don't want to downplay what happens in Puerto Rico, what happens in the Philippines, what happens for a short time in Cuba, and I don't want to downplay the degree that the conquest of the Southwest wasn't an internal form of colonialism, but yes, that denial is built into the system because it was a different form of expansion. At first, the United States' boundaries after independence was the Mississippi. Spain was on the other side of the Mississippi, and I'm bracketing the Native American communities that obviously was part of all of Manifest Destiny. But Spain being able to be cast as a relic of the past, and that the United States would push through. We know the word containment as a word that's associated with the United States, with the US's Cold War foreign policy of the Soviet Union. It was coined in that particular moment by George Kennan in his famous series of arguments about why the United States had to set up in. 1947 and 48, a policy after World War II of containment. But you know who else used the word containment in exactly those terms? The Spanish Empire. Then Mexico started talking about nothing can contain them. You know, there was a sense, there was an appreciation that there was a, the dynamism of the United States, not just in its political form as the state, but just the, you know, obviously the massive migration of settler and colonists Wests was a force that couldn't be stopped.
0: Near the top of the show, you referenced this argument from your book, quote, a primary task of U.S. foreign policy, apart from ensuring defense, accessing resources and opening markets, is to establish hegemony, hegemony not over other nations, but within the United States. Why is that? What does the politics of projecting American power abroad and in Latin America in particular play in shaping U.S. power at home? Because as you mentioned, historical eras and, you know, different sort of regimes in the United States are typically defined by domestic policy. But you say that, in fact, foreign policy has always been key.
1: Political scientists have an argument about political alignments. It's an argument that underwrites a certain understanding of American exceptionalism. The argument goes that, you know, the United States, except for the Civil War, has largely managed to contain social conflict within its political party system. And that political party system evolves over time. There's usually a major political realignment, and one new political coalition comes to power through one of the two parties that are governing at the time. That coalition is made up of various constituencies that may not have shared interests, but through the course of politics, their interests come to be perceived as shared. It's an interesting argument. I I think it does explain a lot of stuff. I think there is a way in which social conflict has been, up until this point at least, absorbed into the party system. We see it now when people are talking about the Republicans embracing a workerist ideology, and are we on the cusp of realignment in which the Republicans put forth some kind of national capitalist Vision. I mean, obviously, I don't believe that that's going to happen. But my point is that scholars who put forth this argument often don't look at the role of foreign policy. That the United States isn't just some other nation with, <laughs> with political bodies that are jockeying for each other. You know, it is an exceptional nation. No other country in the world ever has had access to nearly limitless expansion first landed, and then through the military and markets through the world, like the British Empire had that for a moment, but not really to the unrestrained existential limitlessness that is the American political system in which all domestic social problems could be resolved by an invocation to domestic growth, where the promise of limitlessness could be used to organize domestic politics, to satisfy the interests, to placate the demands. And I mean, we just see this now. I mean, I don't think this is happening and it's going to happen, but certainly the Endless Frontier Act. You know, the (laughs) only way they can get a bipartisan piece of legislation through the Congress is to call it the Endless Frontier Act and, and identify China as the problem. I don't think that by any means that this is a reconstitution of the frontier as a viable way of organizing politics. But I think it's a residual of what I'm talking about. Anyway, in all of this, Latin America is indispensable.
0: One particular and important impact that U.S. imperialism in Latin America has had on the U.S., you write, is on the laws governing the exercise of U.S. imperial power. Because the war powers provision of the U.S. Constitution is one of the vaguest provisions. And it has been through intervention in Latin America that the U.S., quote, built a body of interventionist case law that would be cited down the years to justify subsequent uses of force in areas of the world well beyond Latin America. But before we get into the more specific chronological history, what, what sort of ugly precedents did the U.S. set in Latin America?
1: Oh, well, for instance, in 1856, U.S. Scion a gunboat, destroyed Greytown. In Nicaragua leveled it to the ground. I mean, there was British competition over an interoceanic trade route in, in Nicaragua, and uh, the courts upheld that as presidential prerogative. When Andrew Jackson rampaged through Spanish America when it belonged to Spain in 1818 and killed Seminoles and killed Creeks and killed British subjects, that act would be cited in future laws to justify the preemptive war after 2001 with the 2002 Authorization for the Use of Force Act. There's many of of these kind of precedents. And, you know, they just get worked out quietly in these low-level courts. Sometimes the federal court, they'll affirm that, you know, sometimes it'll be a civil suit so somebody who lost damage in the destruction of Greytown could sue when some local district court ruled that the gunship was acting on behalf of the executive branch and the executive branch had the right to wage that aggressive, proactive destruction of the town. Same thing with Andrew Jackson's destruction of, of uh, the Seminole communities in West Florida. So there's a lot of these incidents. And then they're just cited. It's just like an accumulation of a, a kind of customary law or a case law that creates the larger foundation. And they're cited to this day. So for instance, here's an example. When General Woodfield Scott, who led U.S. troops in Mexico in 1846-48, That was a rampage. I mean, the war lasted a lot longer than anybody in the US thought it would. Mexico put up fairly fierce resistance. It was a war that was completely drummed up by James Polk and other Southern statesmen who wanted a war with Mexico. To secure texas which they did but also wanted wanted to get to california and it was largely fought with volunteers the u.s had a small standing army so any state would raise a volunteer and then they'd be under nominal command the atrocities that were committed by those volunteers rapes destructions of catholic churches desecration of catholic cemeteries things that gotten so bad that general then winfield scott got congress to give him the power to set up martial courts to judge atrocities. Now, they didn't say specifically atrocities about the United States, but the kinds of crimes that were being discussed were clearly crimes perpetrated on Mexicans by U.S. volunteers and U.S. soldiers. So Scott had extraordinary power to set up these tribunals overseas in another country that was administered by the U.S. Army. That precedent was then cited after 9-11 for holding enemy combatants in Guantanamo. It wasn't the only thing, and I'm not saying they wouldn't have held enemy combatants in Guantanamo if Scott, if they didn't have this precedent in history. You know, so it's examples like that, the accretion of these precedents, which eventually justify freeing the hand of the executive when it comes to foreign policy.
0: We on the left often think of U.S. foreign policy as fundamentally continuous regardless of which party is in charge. And there's a lot of truth to that, of course, but you write that U.S. foreign policy really did change toward Latin America in particular under FDR's good neighbor policy, which you call a, quote, radical reversal of U.S. policy that today would be the equivalent of a U.S. president withdrawing troops from the Middle East repudiating the doctrine of preemptive strikes, signing the International Criminal Court Treaty, normalizing relations with Syria and Iran, and permitting third world nations to have greater control over international capital flows. What made the good neighbor policy such a radical departure from the prior century plus of just rampant U.S. intervention in the region? And and what role did domestic factors on the one hand like the Depression, and then regional factors like the Mexican Revolution. What role did all that play in guiding FDR toward this radical break?
1: I mean, it was a radical break not just with U.S. policy, which it certainly was. The U.S. had long claimed the right to intervene in Latin America based on existing international law, but it was a radical revision of international law in general, which was based on the idea of great power, conquests, and the right to defend interests and great powers being able to send the troops in to protect any perceived threats to the interest or the citizens. It was based on a system that had largely been the legal foundation of colonialism and imperialism and wars and conquest and slavery. You know, the strong do what they can and the weak must accept what they must. At the same time, in Latin America, though, there emerged a cohort of jurists and statesmen and political theorists that early on, I mean, the roots of this go back deep to Bolivar, they could go back even further if you wanted to be generous in your interpretation. But but certainly by the 1860s, there emerged a cohort of legal theorists that believed that the Americas was the place to remake international law, to put forward what they thought was an international law based not on the presumption of aggression and antagonistic interests and opposing interests, but the presumption of solidarity and that republics have mutual interests. The most immediate thing was, of course, trying to get the United States to give up its insistence that it had the right to intervene whenever it wanted and to meddle in the affairs of Latin American countries. But they were also concerned about European efforts to collect debt. You know, it wasn't just the United States in the 19th century. It was Germany. It was France. It was Great Britain that were doing a lot of sable rattling and interventionism and sending in boats to force the repayment of debt.
0: And just to pause there, that that was the sort of intervention that the U.S. used as a pretext via the Monroe Doctrine to justify its own intervention. So there were like layers of intervention going on.
1: There is a little bit of daylight where the United States is kind of sympathetic to these ideas because it is a way of keeping out. Europe and establishing its own dominance. So when Venezuela is complaining about Great Britain and France's demand to repay debt, the United States is kind of sympathetic with that argument, but then also it doesn't want that argument to tie its own hands. Anyway, by I'd say 1928, Latin Americans have a fairly comprehensive agenda of what they mean by what they call American international law. They mean the absolute sovereignty and the domestic and foreign affairs of each nation, The United States giving up the right of intervention, creating some kind of multilateral institution in which disputes will be adjudicated on an equitable fashion. And the United States resisted this and it resisted and resisted. I mean, 1928, one of the delegates to the Pan American Conference says, you know, there can't be an American international law. There's only international law. This itself is a contradiction with American exceptionalism, because on the one hand, the United States doesn't want to appeal to international law whenever international law straitjackets them or limits them in any way. But so they say there can't be any American international law, but things happen fast, right? So by this point, the United States has been bogged down in counterinsurgencies that they can't win in Dominican Republic, in Haiti. You know, they've already had the War of 1898, they've taken Puerto Rico as a colony, they're basically administering Cuba as a neo-colony with the Platt Amendment, which they inserted in the Cuban Constitution, which gave the right to the United States to show up whenever it wanted, which it did a number of times. By 1939, it was clear that this was doing nothing to consolidate U.S. power in the region, but just hemorrhaging U.S. power. Getting locked, the United States locked down in a series of military interventions that was radicalizing the hemisphere. I mean, Latin Americans didn't use the term anti-Americanism, they used the term anti-Yankee or anti-interventionism, but it certainly spread waves of antagonism about the United States. Then there's the collapse of the world economy in 1929 and Roosevelt's election in 1932 and his inaugural address in 1933. That inaugural address is overwhelmingly focused on domestic policy. I mean, the United States saw this collapse of unprecedented proportions in its productive capacity and destruction of unbelievable amounts of wealth. And he only has a paragraph on foreign policy, and that paragraph only mentions the good neighbor, not specifically in relationship to Latin America, but to the world. In the realm of foreign affairs, this nation dedicates ourselves to being a good neighbor. There weren't a lot of places in the world where FDR... Could put that vision into effect. In militarists were on the march in Asia, fascists and Nazis in Europe, even allies in Europe were tightening their imperial hold over their colonies. And so they turned to Latin America. And so you saw this conversion of this long standing development of a set of legal ideas, generally known as American international law. And a president that was flexible enough to try new things. So he sends Cordell Hull, his secretary of state, to the seventh Pan American Conference in Montevideo in November in late in late nineteen thirty three, and he tells Hull, "Look, if they want, you know, nighttime lights so they can land airplanes during the night, you can you could give them that. We'll give them road assistance, but don't sign on into non-intervention." But interestingly enough, Hull, who was a Comes from Nashville, Tennessee. He's a died and true free trader. He fought in the War of 1898. He was proud of it because he thought he was freeing Cuba from Spain. Jackson was long gone by this point, Andrew Jackson. But he was a Jacksonian Democrat from Tennessee, but a modernizer. He goes down and he picks Ernest Groening, who was an editor at The Nation, who goes on to be a senator, casting one of two votes against the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. Wow. Gruning spends the whole. Uh, they sail down to Montevideo. spends the whole time buttonholing Hull and say, "Listen, you've got to listen to them about non-intervention. It would be a good policy." Gruning says, "If I were to come out against interventions, the the Hearst papers would kill me from coast to coast." I remember Gruning, uh, Mr. Roosevelt, and I have to be reelected, and then Gruning replied, "Coming out against intervention would help you get reelected." It's amazing. I mean, it would be the equivalent as if, you know, Joseph Biden picked Boschkov to, <laughs> <laughs> to go meet with Putin or Amy Goodman or, or, or even <laughs> Katrina Vanden Heuvel. You know, of course it's not going to happen. There's not that range of – I mean, Groening had spent the 1920s ranting against U.S. torture in Haiti, comparing it to what the Belgians were doing in the Congo. You know, he was staunch anti-imperialist. Anyway, the point is that, that Hull concedes – to Latin America on a host of issues, but most importantly, he concedes that the U.S. will recognize the absolute right to sovereignty in the domestic and foreign affairs of member nations and gives up the right to non-intervention. That had a remarkable transformation of U.S. power. For those who are anti-imperialists, they won't like this because it actually had the effect of strengthening the U.S.'s ability and focusing it to project its power in a way that wasn't being sapped by militarism. Roosevelt withdrew all troops, abrogated the Platt Amendment in Cuba, started to tolerate a significant degree of economic nationalism. He supported the construction of a steel factory in Brazil. He allowed Mexico and Bolivia to nationalize oil industries against the howling of you know, the Rockefellers and the oil interests. All of this creates an enormous goodwill. It allows Hull to sign a series of bilateral Free trade agreements, which helps the United States climb out of the depression and get ready for World War II. And then the and those are free host- trade
0: agreements in the more traditional sense of the term, not in what they've become today, which are just investment protections for international investors. These are about tariffs.
1: These are trade treaties that really had to do with tariffs and allowed the United States to recover. And the effect of that also was the New Deal was under siege really early on. Opening up Latin American markets allowed Roosevelt to build ties with what became a modernizing, technologically intensive, labor-intensive corporate bloc around pharmaceuticals and energy and electricity and, manu- and, and electronics that becomes the corporate ballast of the New Deal coalition. I mean, you know, there were limits to what they were willing to tolerate abroad, and, we, you know, there's plenty of examples in which the New Deal was immediately violated You know, in all sorts of ways, but it did And then and then the U.S. also signed these series of multilateral treaties that say this is what we want to do in the post World War Two period. The Rio Pact, which is a mutual defense pact among American nations, becomes the model for NATO. You know, the Organization of American States becomes the model both for the U.N. and for the various regional alliances that the United States puts into place. So that's one of the main arguments from the book is the centrality of Latin America to the consolidation of the New Deal at home and abroad.
0: What about the role played in particular by the Mexican Revolution in the lead up to FDR's good neighbor policy? How did Mexican dictator Porfirio Diaz's alliance with U.S. capital shape the Mexican Revolution? And then why or how did the revolution force this new settlement with the U.S. and American capitalists in a way that all these other insurgencies in other Latin American countries just could
1: not? Porfirio Diaz was the liberal dictator of Mexico from the 1870s up until his overthrow in 1911.
0: Capital L, liberal, not the U.S. colloquial definition.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's why the phrase neoliberalism resonates and is more of a common sense in Latin America. But it's Porfirio Diaz. I mean, if you see pictures of him, he's decked out with a chest full of medals. And, you know, he's an authoritarian liberal. So the story is, you know, Mexico was invaded by France during the Civil War because of debt. The liberals drive France out. By the way, that's Cinco de Mayo. Cinco de Mayo is not Independence Day. It's the Battle mm-hmm. of Pueblo. <laughs> anybody who doesn't know. And, um... And liberals immediately become subordinated to US finance because of debt contracted during the driving out of France. And that begins what ultimately becomes the first experiment in nation building to transform a third world country into an agro mineral exporting country that basically serves the global market, which in this case meant the United States. So railroads, electrification, ports, the privatization of land, the breaking up of communal holding of peasants, all of these things turn Mexico into basically an adjunct of U.S. capital where it's all geared towards the United States. By 1910, it's just unsustainable and it explodes. If, If Mexico was the first experiment in liberal nation building, it's also the first third world revolt against U.S. capital. And the Mexican Revolution is its own story, which we don't have time to fit in here because it goes on for decades and it's tumultuous and there's different factions and different factors of fighting. But it does stabilize and manage to pass the first social democratic constitution in the world, which clearly enshrines social rights, you know, not just negative rights, you know, rights that are based on the restriction of the state out of the realm of individual action, assemble, speech. But social rights, which required the state to be more active, to distribute wealth in the form of education, in the form of Social Security, in the form of pensions. And it was linked also to the expansion of the state into the realm of the economy is the way the state was going to finance this within the vision of this constitution was to be able to have a greater control over natural resources. And and the Mexican government, it doesn't happen immediately. The constitution is 1917. A lot of the nationalizations don't really get going until the twenties and then really the thirties. And for a long time, Wilson and successive presidents in the United States are outright opposed to the Mexican Constitution's definition of social property and its very robust understanding of eminent domain where the state could legally nationalize property and resources. And But basically, the long story short is that Roosevelt goes along with it. And he goes along with it because he has no choice. The Depression happens. And they need Mexico. And they need Mexico as an ally in World War II. And it's a perfect example of a nation-state, administrative state, That's corporatist in its vision that is able to subordinate the particularist interests of any given economic sector or any given corporation to a larger general vision of the nation. You know, that's the definition of the New Deal in general, and that's something that certainly happens in the case of Mexico, where Roosevelt basically is not going to oppose Mexico's nationalization of standard oil, you know, not just oil, but also land and other industries, but really oil was the big deal. You know, Mexico also becomes an inspiration for a lot of the more radical elements within the New Deal, like Rex Tugwell and the sharecroppers union go to Mexico because they want to see what real agrarian reform looks like. And they start suggesting that Roosevelt apply something like that in the United States. You know, that's not going (laughs) to (laughs) happen.
0: If only this counterfactual history of uh, Latin America's. American Socialism's workshop. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But the heyday of FDR's good neighbor policy didn't really survive FDR by that long. It began to change, you write, in 1947 under President Truman, who moved to condition non-interference and support for democracy on the maintenance of order. What caused Truman to modify FDR's Latin America policy? What did the U.S. mean by order? And... What were the consequences of that decision for Latin America, where governments throughout the 1940s had only just began to move towards constitutional rule?
1: The victory of the allies in World War II is this enormous social democratic victory. It was a social democratic war. Thomas Mann said that, you know, people don't want unrestrained capitals. He said this from exile in Los Angeles. They want social democracy. It was a widespread support for some kind of You know, the NEH is set up in in Great Britain, no less in Latin America. There was a sense that the Allies' victory meant not just an expansion of democracy, but meant an expansion of social democracy. You know, 44 to 46 saw this remarkable period of hope and mobilization and the democratic spring and the transition to social democracy. And there was widespread belief among developmentalists that dependent relationship was democracy and development. That if you expand democracy, you will increase development. And the fundamental idea behind that was that increased democracy would weaken the feudal class. If you could break the power of the landed class, which extracted wealth through monopoly control of land and labor. You would force them to modernize production. You would increase the purchasing power of peasants who can then buy locally made shoes and locally made beer. And that would strengthen the progressive bourgeoisie in any given country. And so democracy was mutually dependent with development. By 47, with larger geopolitical shifts and the rise of the Cold War and the Truman Doctrine.
0: And communist victory in China in '49 in particular.
1: Yeah, and the Greek Revolution and the Czechoslovakian coup and all of that stuff. In Latin America, what begins to happen is that relationship between democracy and development starts to shatter and and a new equation is established between development and order. The United States has shifted from a policy of encouraging Unionization and mobilization and democratization to establishing order. Now, the economic base of this shift has to do in many ways with the fact that Latin America never got a Marshall Plan. So, in Europe, which didn't have to compete for capital, you know, it had access to massive amounts of public capital. Industrializing elites didn't feel they needed to suppress its union movement or non-communist left in order to develop. In Latin America, which had no access to – they expected the Marshall Plan in the founding meeting of the Organization of American States in Bogota in in 1948, George Marshall was basically buttonholed and cornered and put on the defensive by this unbelievably strong demand – from across the political spectrum, from every country, like, where's our money? You know, this was a time when economists like Raoul Prebisch were coming up with the idea of diminishing returns, basically the foundation of dependency theory, the idea that in a situation where one country is exporting primary material and importing finished goods, there will be a constant deterioration of the terms of trade, that will lead to the debt enthrallment of the primary producing nation.
0: That the very unequal structure of the capitalist world system makes development impossible.
1: Yeah, so put it in simple terms, I mean, one economist told this to George Marshall. He said five years ago, I was a Colombian economist. Five years ago, it took us 100 bags of coffee to import one Jeep. Now it, now it costs 200 bags of coffee to import one Jeep. This is untenable. They wanted to develop value-added industries. And Marshall told them, Yeah, that's great. And you know where you get some money? You get the money from <laughs> private capital and from loans. And so industrialists and nations competing for private capital, what's the first thing that you have to do to get to attract private capital? Repress labor. Having, yeah. And not just labor, there was no space for an anti Soviet left to develop. So all reformers, all nationalists, all Democrats were seen as the problem. I mean, you know, in, you know, in different countries at different times, that's a crude way of putting it, but there was no structural space for a social democratic party, for a Willy Brandt. There was no space for a Christian democratic reformer. The overwhelming momentum was to evaporate the political center because of this and lead to the post-war radicalization that a lot of us know the story of.
0: This shift becomes most murderously clear in 1954, when the CIA, which had just been founded in, in 47, orchestrated a coup against Guatemalan President Jacobo Arbenz, benz a New Deal-style social democrat whose horrible crime was that he, one, dared to legalize the Communist Party, and two, expropriated uncultivated land owned by the United Fruit Company, expropriated with compensation.
1: Compensation based on what the United States Fruit Company said they paid was the tax value of the land. And this
0: wasn't the CIA's first covert op against the left, of course. They'd worked to prevent communist victory in post-war Italy. And in 53, overthrown, helped overthrow the Iranian government of Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh, again, for infringing on the the sacrosanct rights of, of private capital. But you write that Guatemala, quote, was the agency's most comprehensive covert action to date. What did the CIA do in Guatemala? And what made it so novel?
1: Guatemala was one of the worst countries in terms of repression up until 1994. They had re, they basically reinstituted slavery in 1871, which continued until 1944. In 1944, there was a democratic revolution. It was a perfect example of that democratic spring that I was talking about on a continent-wide scale. Juan José Odevalo was kind of a president that advanced political democracy. Jacobo Argumens was elected in 1950 to push the ideals of political democracy into the social realm, which practically meant trying to assert the state sector in the rural countryside where plantations and latifundistas and the United Fruit Company you know, ran the place as if it was some feudal serfdom. Huckleball, the main thing was that he, his main sin was to pass agrarian reform law that expropriated night fruit company land. But even before that, under Truman in 1949, the U.S. started putting into place contingency plans when Arevalo, the first president during this period, tried to put into place a labor code, which might've had some impact on the United Food Company. But in any case, the CIA put into play about a 18 month operation that wasn't just designed to overthrow others, but basically drew on all of the advances in psychological warfare, in mass psychology, in mass sociology. Sigmund Freud's nephew Edward Bernays was involved in creating ways to disorient. It was the first sustained psychops for such a prolonged period. They drew on things like Austin Welles's War of the Worlds broadcast for how they could use radio to disseminate misinformation. The main goal was to create the idea that there was an internal opposition, and there wasn't. Basically, they created a mercenary army of disgruntled military people in Honduras, a few hundred ragtag things. They let the Guatemalan National Army know that if their intervention into Guatemala, the mercenary army failed, that the United States would then intervene. Aside from that, there was not widespread opposition. Arbenz was enormously popular. Land reform was popular. So the point was to create this idea that there were these two forces in contention And you could do an even deeper read, and it's an important moment in kind of the transition of political subjects and citizens who understood themselves as political actors, the transformation of them through spectacle into passive spectators. Like, you know, like that Wimbledon, they're going looking this way and looking that way. You know, they spread rumors, their allies in Guatemala blew up bridges, and so there was this sense of unease that things were falling apart. And it did. And it was the CIA's most of uh, it was a full spectrum coup that drew on all aspects of U.S. power militarily, economically. It got You know, under the terms of multilateralism, and this goes back to an earlier discussion, the U.S. didn't break with the terms of multilateralism, but they got the organization of American states to sanction the isolation of Guatemala because it's being threatened by external communism. So formally, the isolation of an outcast of Guatemala was under the guise of the multilateral system created after World War II, even though everybody knows the U.S. was acting unilaterally.
0: The Cuban Revolution's 1959 victory radically changed Latin America and U.S. foreign policy toward it. But both Cuba's revolution and the U.S. reaction to it were shaped by the Guatemalan coup. You write, quote, In planning to overthrow Castro... The CIA had believed its own hype, that its disinformation campaign against Arbenz not only disoriented, confused and scared Guatemalans, which it did, but also created an organized internal opposition to Arbenz, which it didn't. The U.S. instigated in Guatemala also went on to shape Castro's approach to governing, leading him to adopt the very sort of repressive methods that the U.S. would then use as a pretext to attack Cuba. Che once said, quote, Cuba will not be Guatemala. You write, quote, taken together, these two revolutions, one in Guatemala, failed because of the United States, the other in Cuba, victorious against the United States, fell like a bomb on Latin America, polarizing politics throughout the hemisphere and leading to greater militancy on both sides of the Cold War divide. This juxtaposition, what what do we learn about the trajectory of Latin American politics and U.S. policy toward the region when we read these two things, Guatemala's coup and Cuba's revolution when we read them side by side.
1: Well, it teaches us about history. It teaches us about cause and effect, right? It teaches us that actions have consequences. Teaching these two events together is, is, is they teach themselves. This is so overwhelmingly clear, the relationship between one and another um Che, you know, I'm sure people have seen that Motorcycle Diary movie where he travels from Argentina through Chile and he gets a sense of the larger continental identity and he winds up in Machu Picchu and then he swims across the Amazon. His next stop on that itinerary, I think he goes back to Argentina, but he's in, he goes to Guatemala where he becomes a, a young, socially committed doctor working in a rural clinic. And he's writing his aunt back in Buenos Aires saying, you know, you can breathe in democracy here. But then he complains that Arbenz isn't doing enough to stop the propaganda and misinformation. He lets every newspaper print whatever they want. And everybody knows that these things are basically organs of the CIA. He takes refuge in the Argentine embassy after the coup, where he meets a number of young new leftists that become radicalized by the overthrow of Arbenz, one of them goes on to found the guerrilla army of the poor in Guatemala. Che himself goes on to Mexico and that's where he meets Fidel Castro. So it's this moment, a transition between, if we take the Guatemalan revolution, which was a moment where leftists, including the Communist Party, still looked to the United States as a potential model of development, still thought they could work with a progressive bourgeoisie and indeed the Policies of land reform were designed to strengthen the progressive bourgeoisie, still thought that they could create these kind of national class coalitions to bring about some kind of social democratic reform. That's in 52, 53, 54 in Guatemala. By the time you get to 59, you know, we're just talking about six years later, 59, 60 you know, that's over. The Cuban Revolution, you know, not immediately, but by 62, declares itself to be Marxist-Leninist and has a much more radical vision of what economic justice means. In terms of the United States, the CIA fell for its own propaganda. I mean, talk about disinformation. You know, Nick Cullither is a great historian. He's written on global food programs and, and the Green Revolution, but Before he actually got a job, after he got his PhD, he was hired by the CIA during a moment of openness in the 1990s to go through the archives and write an internal history of Operation PB success, of the overthrow of Aubens. One of Cullert's main points is that the CIA, in just a few short years, believed its own propaganda and organized the Bay of Pigs on what they perceived to be the success in Guatemala, That somehow a mass uprising, groundswell, rose up to overthrow Arbenz, which didn't happen. And no massive uprising against Castro happened as a result of the psychological warfare program in Cuba. And Castro was a lot better prepared. And they beat back the Bay of Pigs invasion. And that event had one of these waves of radicalization throughout the hemisphere that catapulted castro into legendary status as the spokesperson for the left and as somebody who beat back goliath what aubens couldn't do in
0: 1960 in stark contrast to the camelot aura that apparently will never go away jfk ran as a militarist including by attacking nixon who was eisenhower's vp for losing cuba to communism just the year prior or to losing cuba to the revolution at least it wasn't fully communist yet once in office he quote looked to counterinsurgency and covert operations as a way of breaking the nuclear deadlock and controlling the rise of third world nationalism but then he also founded the alliance for progress which quote promised billions of dollars in development aid in exchange for enacting land, tax, judicial, and electoral reform aimed at breaking up extreme concentrations of economic and political power. It does not take an expert on this region to discern that this was a huge contradiction. As you write, quote, Kennedy's revolutionary rhetoric encouraged those who sought change. His military aid girded those who fought change, empowering the most illiberal forces in the hemisphere wanting to awaken one kind of revolution and pacify another kind of revolution. He armed those opposed to any kind of revolution. What explained these contradictory policies that emerged from a single US administration under JFK? Were they the product of contradictory forces or power blocks within the US government or within his administration, or did they reflect a more fundamental contradiction in liberal empire?
1: Probably the latter in some degree and maybe the former also, but maybe less important. Certainly the idea of the United States as a liberalizing agent and revolutionary agent in the world is deeply ingrained within the United States' conception of itself. And I think JFK's presidential campaign was predicated on restoring a sense of purpose from a certain kind of status quo that Eisenhower had worked out with the Soviet Union. And part of that was embracing that revolutionary rhetoric. It was specifically in response to Castro. I mean, you know, Kennedy famous said, We're go- we are going to complete the revolution of the Americas." You know, that that was clearly, obviously, in response to the inspiration offered by the Cuban revolution to Latin America. At the same time, though, particularly after the Korean War, the United States was committed to strengthening the internal security capacity of member nations to prevent falling into another major military standoff, including U.S. troops. This was prior to escalation in Vietnam. So I think those two things really come to a head in the Alliance for Progress and really kind of crash into each other. The larger context, of course, is what I mentioned earlier, where short of having access to public capital, having to compete for private investment and having to compete for loans, there was no middle ground in terms, you know, any kind of reform but was singled out. And now what the Alliance for Progress did with its military aid was strengthen the repressive capacities of a state. And what you see in the 1960s is, on the one hand, there's a little bit of the reform stuff does get put into place. The, the Alliance for Progress, under the ages of the Alliance for Progress, promotes some kind of land reform. It does it in Chile, does it even to a degree in Guatemala and El Salvador. On the other hand, what it meant to strengthen the security apparatus was to professionalize them, to take the various police agencies of any given country and get them to start working in a coordinated manner, getting them to start sharing information, increasing the capability of acting on that information in a rapid manner to get more intelligence, to act on that intelligence. It's not just strengthening, it's accelerating The response time of repression you see throughout the 1960s and 1970s is the fallout from that polarization gets worse with many deciding to follow the Cuban path of insurgency and it leads to a radicalization of the right and the rise of these death squad states.
0: One of his most famous quotes from that period is those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. But what he missed was that it's also true that those who fund violent repression who make peaceful revolution impossible
1: yes absolutely yeah
0: kennedy's policies helped unleash what you call the first of latin america's quote two great cycles of right-wing coups this early 60s round is what you call the alliance for progress coups that included el salvador honduras the dominican republic guyana bolivia haiti brazil and then another coup in guatemala and then the second cycle of coups took place in the 70s under nixon and ford And they were concentrated more in the Southern Cone and Southern Andes, a second coup in Bolivia, along with coups in Uruguay, Chile and Argentina. What distinguishes these two cycles of coups from one another in terms of both Latin American politics during these two periods pretty close to one another and also the U.S. foreign policy that produced them or were they just fundamentally the same?
1: No, I think, again, cause and effect, understanding something that happens first has an impact on what comes later. I think that, you know, I think that- Not a popular notion
0: in conventional American wisdom. No, no.
1: (laughs) The first round of coups basically were designed to counter the influence of Cuba and respond as quickly as possible to any potential threat that any country that might be sympathetic or movement that might be sympathetic to Cuba and to begin strengthening the repressive capacities of countries- under the rubric of a national security doctrine. But it also kicks off another round of radicalization, of more repression. And coming out of the 1960s and 1970s are insurgencies in a number of countries. And so the second round of coups is really the culmination of that process and the coming to power of full-on death squad states. It's the 1970s coups that bring into power the coup in 73 in Uruguay and Allende in 73 and Argentina in 76 and Bolivia in 71. And these really are the Operation Condor coups. If during the first round of coups, the idea is to strengthen the national intelligence capacity for repression within any given state, what happens after the 1970s coup is that they internationalize that and Mm -hmm. Operation Condor becomes a further centralization of the repressive capacities of the state. And that's when the worst of the violence, you know, the major disappearances and massacres and... But by the end of the 70s, South America is locked down. One country after another is ruled by right-wing dictatorships allied with the United States. The axis of conflict shifts then to Central America.
0: Before we get to Central America, just to pause on Chile for a moment, you write that Kissinger was obsessed with Chile. And that he saw Salvador Allende's socialist led popular unity government, which took office in 1970 as a bigger threat than Castro and Castro was close to Allende and he urged him to arm his followers, organize them into a people's militia to take on the military because he saw what was coming. But Allende refused because he was committed to proving that socialism and democracy were compatible. But Kissinger was intent on proving the opposite, that democracy and socialism were incompatible. And U.S. support for Pinochet's coup, you know, in fact, did make that incompatibility a reality, however perversely. Why were Kissinger and Nixon, why did they find Allende's model so frightening?
1: Well, the larger context is detente, right? The United States is trying to extricate itself from Vietnam. Part of that process is to put into place what becomes known or becomes seen as respect for each superpower's respective sphere of influence. This is Kissinger's brokering of the United States' exit from Vietnam, is to accept the division of the world as having spheres of influence. And that was ultimately the essence of detente. And Chile was firmly within the United States' sphere of influence. And so another country voting in a self-described Marxist was a threat, not only in terms of detente, but one, it's easy to discredit Castro. He was authoritarian. And to save the revolution, he had to do everything that Aubens didn't do. It's hard to discredit somebody who is democratically elected. That's a threat. And the second thing is that this is a model that isn't confined to Chile. This is Eurocommunism. I mean, the United States is worried about this in Italy, it's worried about this in Portugal, it's worried about this in, in Europe. The overthrow of Allende was a warning to Eurocommunists that the U.S. would accept them as junior partners to a a center-left government, but they would never accept them as the main party within a government in Europe. The thing about Chile is that it's interesting because, you know, on the one hand, it's a key player in the third world new international economic order. On the other hand, its political model has deep resonance within Eurocommunism. Euro-communists being, you know, communists who distanced themselves from the Soviet Union and want to compete electorally within the political structure as is.
0: And you write that it was Kissinger was as concerned with Allende's foreign policy as he was with his domestic policy, specifically his vision for a new international economic order drawing on, and you mentioned him earlier, you know, developmentalist ec- economists like Raul Prebisch and this whole kind of third worldist, you know, school of economic thought that believed that the basic terms of the world system had to be transformed for development to ever be actually possible.
1: Yeah. You could go point by point. Everything that the new international economic order asked for, neoliberalism did the opposite. So the new international order wanted a basic price floor for 14 commodities, right? Neoliberalism, basically, it's a race to the bottom, The new international economic order wanted the socialization of intellectual property rights and technology as a way to help the third world develop and create value-added industry. The whole system of property law put into place under, first under Reagan, but then under GATT and the WTO, you know, basically sanctifies international property rights. It's the heart of the rentier economy. One of the things, goes specifically to Allende, one of the things that Allende did An Algerian economist came up with this doctrine of excess profit. So not only did they nationalize Anaconda and Kennecott and ITT, they did some math, they had some formula, and they figured out how much excess profit the corporation had extracted in the past, and they deducted that amount (laughs) from the compensation. (laughs) You can look at minutes in the White House, Connolly, the Secretary of Treasury and Kissinger, they were furious about this. So at some point, that was the last straw. So on the one hand, you have, you know, the new international economic order putting forth this notion of historic redress, reparations for corporate exploitation. Ne- what does neoliberalism does? Not only does it enshrine property rights and rolls back nationalization, it puts into place the investor settlement mis- dispute mechanism in which corporations could sue countries for loss of future profits. That's <laughs> you know, exact opposite. I'm Aziz
0: Rana and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast and you can support it at Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions by Astra Taylor. Over the last decade, author activist and DIG guest host, Astra Taylor, has helped shift the national conversation on topics including technology, inequality, indebtedness, and democracy. The essays collected here reveal the range and depth of her thinking, with Taylor tackling the rising popularity of socialism, the problem of automation, the politics of listening, the possibility of rights for the natural and non-human world the future of the university, the temporal challenge of climate catastrophe, and more. Addressing some of the most pressing social problems of our day, Taylor invites us to imagine how things could be different while never losing sight of the strategic question of how change actually happens. Remake The World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions by Astra Taylor out now from Haymarket Books. I want to turn to Ronald Reagan's absolutely murderous interventions in Central America. We think of Reagan's morning in America campaign theme as this like optimistic counter to Jimmy Carter's gloomy disposition. You write that Reagan's brutal optimism also included at its core a restoration of American military power in this rock-solid belief in its virtue and the president's right to direct it, what role did this reinvigorated imperialism in Central America in particular, in Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Guatemala, what role did it play in the rise of Reagan and the new right during these last years of the Cold War?
1: You know, Gene Kirkpatrick famously said that Central America is the most important place in the world today. It's centrally important for the United States. And, you know, commentators in 1982 had a hard time understanding what she meant by that. that you know, there was the Middle East, the Soviet Union, which had nuclear weapons. There was Eastern Europe. There was still a fallout from Asia. And it turns out Central America's importance was its unimportance because it was squarely within the United States' in its backyard. It had these test case left revolutions that was the last kind of Untamed, unpacified place in Latin America, in the Western Hemisphere. It had no major, I mean, it had coffee, obviously, but no resources the United States couldn't do without. It had no nuclear weapons. So Reagan could give the region to movement conservatives without little fear of consequence. You know, Reagan came to power committed to restoring a sense of purpose. And, you know, Gene Kirkpatrick was a key ideologue in that restoration.
0: That's Reagan's U.N. A- ambassador, former yeah. Democrat, and neocon with just a remarkably Hobbesian view of the world.
1: She's the one who, you know, relentlessly, even before Reagan's election, lambasted the Democrats for losing confidence that Vietnam had scrambled the worldview, because the Democratic Party was the party of idealism, from Wilson to JFK, as we talked about, Right. The Republican Party was more likely to say, I don't think we should be using the word revolution when we're talking about foreign policy. But You know, the Democrats were happy to throw away the word revolution up until until Vietnam. And so Carter, and we can bracket Carter what exactly the nature of the Carter presidency was, but it was a foil for people like Patrick and other neoconservatives to sharpen their critique and sharpen their focus. They said that the United States had to retake the Third World. Now, part of this was economic interest. It is true. Any attempt to get out of the crisis of Keynesianism in the 1970s had failed. So Reagan came to power committed to retaking the Third World, and the first and the first place to really do that was in Central America. And Central America allowed him to do a number of things. One, it allowed him to remoralize foreign policy. You know, remoralize militarism. Right, the whole. Contras on the moral equivalents of the founding fathers. Reagan even claimed spiritual kinship with Augusto Sandino, you know, the real Sandino. And But he was also able to give Central America to all of the different movement conservatives that brought into power. So there was the secular neoconservatives, people like Elliot Abrams, Paul Wolfowitz, all of those people. Then there was the theocons. Reagan basically mobilized the religious right to support anti-communism in Central America, change laws and change regulations to facilitate the religious right to be involved and provide a humanitarian aid to belligerents.
0: There were right-wing Vietnam vets, both in and in government like Oliver North, and then this n- network of far-right mercenaries.
1: Vietnam vets radicalized to the right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we talk about Nicaragua being, you know, a, a mecca for Sandinistas and left-wing activists and tourists and those more committed. But really, Central America was a beacon for the right. You know, they all traveled to Central America.
0: Jean Kirkpatrick just would say the most terrible thing. She believed that death squads were part of Salvadoran culture and even praised Maximiliano Hernandez Martinez, the Salvadoran dictator who in 1932 presided over, I think it was called La Matanza, one of the largest mass killings in the hemisphere's history. But You write that what was most historically consequential was how Reagan and the neocons adopted these themes of democracy promotion and protecting human rights to legitimate U.S. intervention. As you mentioned earlier, these are the sort of ideas, these kind of idealist ideas that had once been key to liberal internationalist justifications for U.S. imperialism. What were the consequences of the new right adopting this moralistic brand of imperialism? And did any sort of contradictions emerge from... The combination of this sort of neocon utopian pretense with Kirkpatrick's openly murderous Hobbesianism that like really just devalued in, in a fundamentally kind of racist way, Central American lives.
1: You see at different moments in history, this tension between counterinsurgents who believe that you have to reform, you have to win hearts and minds, you have to build the state in order to limit the space available for insurgents and guerrillas, you have to, you know, reform to make society more just in order to win over the population. And then you have the people who say, yeah, right, kill first, and then we build the state. And the reality is that throughout history, what actually happens on the ground is that you kill first and then you build a state. You know, that happened with Native Americans in the West and it happened in the Philippines and then it happened in El Salvador.
0: Yeah, counterinsurgency is supposed to be carrots and and sticks, but no matter what you write, the quote, doctrines, unspoken fundamentals were torture and killing.
1: But the rhetoric is important because it convinces that, that you're doing a good thing. Once the Republicans take power, two things happen. All of these militarists from Vietnam... Counterinsurgent theorists, see El Salvador as a chance to get it right.
0: Central America was a do-over opportunity.
1: Was a do-over opportunity. And they spent money on civic action, and they promoted land reform, and they did all of the things that Kirkpatrick said they shouldn't do. And again, none of that worked. Ultimately, at the end of the day, the United States and Salvador fought the FMLN to a standstill based on massive violence and death squad killings and torture and disappearance. Death squads
0: for which the groundwork was laid by JFK.
1: Yeah, but you see this repeated over and over again. You know, it's all self-delusion on the parts of counter-insurgent theorists because what ultimately wins the day is pure repression, but the language of state building and winning hearts and minds and fighting the other war, meaning the war for hearts and minds, the war for reform you know, allows them to think that what they're doing is a kind of noble thing. You
0: write that Reagan had a remarkable domestic operation to protect his foreign policy in Central America. He nurtured this alliance of militarists and evangelicals to counter left-wing and liberal solidarity and sanctuary movements, which were really the most consequential U.S. social movements of of the 80s. And you write that this pro-war alliance ultimately plays a key role in making the new right coalition what it became, what it is today. How, what did this Reagan administration campaign against domestic opponents and critical journalists, what did it look like and why do you argue that that the alliance it nurtured was so critical for the new right over the long term?
1: Well, I mean, on the one hand, the alliance comes together in actually fighting the wars in Salvador, right? There's the militarists in El Salvador. There's the mercenaries in Nicaragua that are working with the Contras, There's the evangelicals that are sent down to Central America that get very involved in humanitarian relief for the conscience because they see themselves as part of this military crusade. It leads to a kind of thickening of the base, a thickening of the of the relations. Part of this is a general sense. Your Patrick Buchanan says in a seminar about Central America, he says, look, the, the consensus that the United States had up until 1966 is gone and it's not coming back. The key is to figure out how to manage the decenses, how to manage the polarization. Part of that is creating its own constituency, which they do, they mobilize evangelicals in fundraising. And a lot of the fundraising goes into supporting the Contras and as part of the Iran Contra network. But then another key thing, which I think is what you were getting at in the question, is that they set up this office of public diplomacy in 1983. And the Office of Public Diplomacy is in direct violation of the National Security Act, which prohibits the use of propaganda and misinformation on on the U.S. public. But it is staffed by um, psych operators from the Department of Defense. It uses Republican Madison Avenue advertising firms to run polls and focus groups to find out what words play well, and it mobilizes a whole kind of grassroots staff. Provide a counter narrative. One of the things that they do in specific terms is if anybody reports a negative story on El Salvador, the point isn't what wasn't necessarily to disprove the story, but just one, do two things throw enough mud into the waters so nobody could come up with a clear opinion about what happened over any atrocity, and two, raise the stakes on journalists for reporting that, right? So Karen Burns, who I think. Worked for ABC. She said, "Look, if I wanted to do a story on on El Salvador or on contra violence, I'd have to spend so much time fact checking it because I knew I'd be attacked. It wasn't worth it. Right. You know, I'll just do another. It was a career killer. It's just not worth it."
0: You write that the religious right was motivated to get involved in Central America by its opposition to leftist liberation theology and also just to liberal Christian human rights critics. How did this religious right crusade make, quote, possible the remoralization of American power. We tend tend to think of the history of the religious right as mostly being this history of domestic culture war reaction on issues like abortion and gay rights. But you argue that foreign policy was really key, something we see again in the last few decades with their role in attacking, you know, so-called political Islam.
1: If you think about what the crisis of the 70s was for the United States, it was an ideological crisis, it was a crisis of confidence, it was a crisis of morality, a sense that markets and militarism were proved to be immoral. And and liberation theology I think was the high point of that critique because it made its critique not just on secular grounds but on religious grounds, right, which provides it with a certain kind of dispensational authority. Liberation theologians held that the profit motive was an amoral mechanism that destroyed Christian solidarity or human solidarity.
0: And that Christ exercised a preferential option for the poor.
1: And that U.S. militarism upheld an unjust social system. Liberation theology shared a lot of the same assumptions of dependency theory, that the wealth of the first world was dependent on the poverty of the third world. If we just step back and think about the new rights project of restoring a sense of righteousness to markets and militarism, the very first battle in many ways was against liberation theologians. And, you know, there's a lot of overlap, secular conservatives and market oriented conservatives remoralize the market as a place of creativity and fulfillment that competition leads to innovation. I mean, you know, we know the secular argument for the market, but there were a lot of religious fundamentalist economists who understood their work as specifically responding to the arguments of liberation theologians, that the free market wasn't an amoral place, but it reflected God's grace, that it made necessitous men strive to do better and it thus expanded the role of freedom that if there were countries that were poor and countries that were wealthy, that that reflected a certain kind of divine option as well. There was a lot of overlap between secular and fundamentalist embrace of capitalism. And the argument of the book is that a focus on liberation theology was the kind of rallying and unifying point between those two. And obviously, The project of Reaganism was exactly that, to rehabilitate the market, rehabilitate capitalism, rehabilitate, in moral terms, U.S. militarism and power.
0: You write that the Reagan-backed Contra army in Nicaragua, that it was in essence this franchise of Operation Condor, part of a web of reaction and repression that stretched across the hemisphere, U.S.-backed web of reaction and repression. But today we just remember it as the Iran Contra scandal that the Reagan administration broke the law by sending aid to the Contras illegally after being barred from doing so by Congress using money generated from the secret sale of missiles to Iran and Democrats at the time you write they treated Iran Contra as this domestic process scandal but never really questioned Reagan on the premise which is that it was good and okay to intervene in Nicaragua to overthrow the revolution and that the politics of that all sound really depressingly familiar. And, <laughs> yeah. And the upshot was that the scandal didn't stick, certainly not to George H.W. Bush, who went on to beat Michael Dukakis in 88. Why did the Democrats refuse to confront Reagan's militarism on more fundamental terms? And what, was there
1: some sort of shift in the party underway? I read Contras two scandals. One was that the Boland Amendment prohibited the allocation of military aid to support the Contras. This was all part of, of a general kind of rollback of US militarism after Vietnam. Part of the Reagan restoration was figuring out workarounds over all of those oversight committees, you know, and, and attempts to reign in the imperial presidency. And uh, the Bolin amendment allowed for humanitarian aid to flow to the Contras, but not military aid. So the fact that the Reagan administration was covertly sending military aid to the Contras was one scandal. Another scandal was that the Reagan administration was selling high-tech weapons to iran with israel's assistance and you and diverting that money to support the contras the first scandal the Contra scandal blew up in the press first and then in november 1986 a small lebanese newspaper reported on the sale of the weapons and the two scandals were linked and it was revealed that the reagan administration through Oliver North and John Poindexter and all of these frontline ideologues, you know, this kind of interagency war party, which operated within the Reagan administration of second-rung officials that worked to both isolate more moderate establishment Republicans like George Schultz and figure out these ways of conducting an aggressive foreign policy and support of these frontline anti-communists, through these illegal ways, broken the press. The Democrats largely treated it as a procedural issue. You know, there was still a substantial peace coalition or caucus within the Democratic Party, but the Democratic establishment was pretty much going along with the Reagan administration's assumption that the Sandinistas were a problem that had to be contained, and that it was the U.S.'s right to do that. And there's a great video on YouTube of George Mitchell lecturing Oliver North. Oliver North, it's a seven minute video and Oliver North doesn't say a word. He's sitting there with his chest full of medals and his rock hard jaw and his short haircut. And George Mitchell decides to lecture Oliver North on, we're a country of laws and a country of citizenship. And right off the bat, he basically concedes that the Sandinistas were a problem and there were ways to deal with them. And then he just starts talking for seven minutes. He doesn't let Oliver North say a word. And it's an example of how you can win an argument without saying a word. I mean, mean, if you you find that video, you will see a New Deal establishment that is so exhausted it can't stop talking without actually saying anything.
0: And without conceding the premises of their ostensible
1: opponents. And the ascendant coalition, the Reagan administration, so confident they don't have to say anything. And so you know, Democrats, because they largely shared the anti-communist assumptions as it related to Nicaragua, never went after Reagan on the, on the substance of the policy rather than the procedures of the policy. And so that basically tanked them. And then, of course, the winding down of the Cold War left Iran-Contra to be a, a dead issue. But the book argues that it's, it's indispensable. The Iran-Contra wasn't a scandal. It was the coming out party and coalescing of the new right. And if you want to learn about, understand the dimensions of the new right and the ideologies of the new right, there's no better place than to look at Iran-Contra in all of its many dimensions. I mean, Dick Cheney writing the Minority Report in the House, to the House's report in which he puts forward a theory of executive power that was considered outrageous in 1987, but then would be rehabilitated in 2003 as like, you know, common sense you know, the ways in which the FBI and the CIA began to re-piece together a domestic repressive apparatus to go after Cispus, the ways in which they learned how to mobilize public opinion and manipulate public opinion to support a war in a logic political context of polarization and the way that the war itself allowed for a kind of ideological reconciliation of various constituencies of the new right that just on paper might not have had much overlap.
0: Well, Greg Grandin, thank you very much. Thank you. Greg Grandin is a professor of history at Yale and the author of many books, including The Last Colonial Massacre, Fordlandia, The End of the Myth, and Empire's Workshop. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the discovery of gold and silver in America, the extirpation, enslavement, and entombment in mines of the aboriginal population, the beginning of the conquest and looting of the East Indies, the turning of Africa into a warren for the commercial hunting of black skins, signaled the rosy dawn of the era of capitalist production. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, but this episode was edited and produced by the great John Hanrahan. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Izzy Olive. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at TheDigRadio.com. Follow us on Twitter at TheDigRadio and find us wherever you get podcasts. And subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please do leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, sort of. But what really, really does that is you just telling friends to check out the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at Patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge.